Please have a seat. Amen. We're going to continue today our series in Daniel entitled, The Future Belongs to God. As we talk about that, we think about prayer. Think about how we need to pray for the future. And when we pray for the future, you know, we, we're going to pray to God because he's the one who controls the future. He's the one who it belongs to. When's the best time to pray? Yeah, well, prayer is something you want to do all the time. It should be an ongoing process. And yet, it, there does seem like there are times when prayer is more prominent. There are times when we are more moved to pray because of maybe a crisis in our life or to a larger extent, even nationally or internationally. When our country was first started, our first president, George Washington, called for the country to pray. And Abraham Lincoln sent out a, a, just an eloquent call for prayer during the American Civil War where he called for the people to return to the God who made them. Dwight D. Eisenhower, just after World War II and Korea, called for the presidential prayer breakfast and initiated that event. And Ronald Reagan, more recently in, in our era, I guess you'd say, called for the National Day of Prayer at the height of communism. Now, it seems like when we're in a time of crisis, we tend to be more moved to pray in that kind of way. And today we have an example of that with Daniel. He has a crisis with his people, and he's moved to pray for them as a whole. And it's a good example for us. So we're going to take a look at that today, and we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Let me read that to us to get us started here. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, so we know who's writing this, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of Yahweh, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and far, uh, those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oaths that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. 
He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For Yahweh, our God, is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for him yourself, as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Pretty passionate, pretty intense. And so we we have this really intense, passionate prayer by Daniel. We're going to unpack it today. Daniel prays for his people. And the first thing that we see in verses 1 through 15 is that Daniel confesses their sin. And the the stage is set for us. We're told this is in the first year of Darius the Mede, and we know that that calculates out to about 539 B.C. So we've got the date. We wonder, who was this Darius? And remember, a little ways back, we introduced him. We talked about who Darius was. Uh, Darius the Mede was a guy who was part of Media. You know, he's a Mede, and Media was a kingdom. And the kingdom of Media joined with the kingdom of Persia, and they formed the Medo-Persian people, and they overthrew. They conquered the seemingly unconquerable Babylonian Empire, which is the first great empire, and some say the greatest empire that mankind has ever known. They overthrew them, almost effortlessly, even as Daniel had prayed. And so they now are in power. Now they have the Medo-Persian Empire. And we think that Darius was the general who contacted, the, who, who basically conquered the capital city. It's almost like you chop off the head of the dragon and everything else falls apart. So the capital city, the capital state really, was called Babylon or Babylonia. And he conquered that. And then he became the administrative leader. And Cyrus the Great was the real king and he was going around mopping up things around the empire. But in the capital, Babylon or Babylonia, Darius was in charge. And that capital is roughly what today is modern day Iraq. There's something else interesting here, though. It says that he was over the Chaldeans. You know how in the United States we have different ethnicities, different nationalities, different backgrounds, right? Well, they did the same thing in the Babylonian Empire. And the people that got in control, 
they were the most powerful people from ancient times in that area were called the Chaldeans. And well, so what? Well, Chaldea was an ancient kingdom initially, and its capital was the city of Ur. And we believe it was located right there in what became Babylon. Why is that important? Think about your history in the Bible. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? Do you remember where they came from? Ur of Chaldea. Do you understand what's happening here? God said, go to a promised land, Canaan, and establish a kingdom there. Abraham went there and established a kingdom. But because they were unfaithful, what did God do? Sent them back. They've gone all the way back to Ur. And that's, you know, what perfect punishment. The punishment fits the crime. He gave them the land. They rejected him, so he brought them back. And he brought them back in exile. So that kind of sets the stage for where we're at. And, and now we look at Daniel. He would have been in his 80s. He's an old man with a white beard, sitting up maybe at a desk. We're told that he lived in an upper chamber of a, of a building, probably like the upper portion of an apartment, nice swank downtown neighborhood, nightclubs and stuff. And he's up above there looking out, maybe the sun's setting, and he's reading this scroll. And the scroll he's reading is Jeremiah. And why would that be interesting for us? Jeremiah had died just decades before. And so what's happened is Jeremiah's writing was received as being something that God had delivered to his people. They'd made copies of it, and maybe 10, 15 years later, whatever it was, that was now in his possession, and he was reading it. This is today's Old Testament. He was reading today's Old Testament maybe a decade or so after it had been written. It speaks of the historicity and the authenticity of the Bible that we can know that it's real, that it's dependable, that it wasn't just you know, something that somebody wrote many years later. It was written at that time. And as he's reading this, we know that he would have camped out primarily at Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 through 12, um, and Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, and Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. And, and in brief, basically what these passages say is that God, it, the context is God has made a covenant with his people. A covenant's kind of like a peace treaty. It's a, it's a contractual agreement that God makes with his people. So God is the king, and Israel, they're his servants. Remember that God doesn't give them the law first. He doesn't say, if you obey the law, I'll be your God. He says, I love you. And by grace, I want to welcome you as my people. But if you don't behave the way you should, if you go ahead and you're my people and you go around and you do all these horrible things, what are people going to think about me and who I am? That's not who I am. So I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to set up a law based on your system to give you an idea of how you ought to behave. And if you behave the way you should, we're going to get along famously. But if you continue to behave ways that, that demean who I am and what I'm all about, there will be consequences. Primarily, I'll withhold myself and let you end up happening. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen to you. But he, I also orchestrate the events. And there's going to be this process. You're going to have opportunities time and again. But if you keep over centuries 
not doing what you should, ultimately what's going to happen, and he writes this in advance, is you are going to end up going back to Babylon. And you're going to go there for 70 years, which seven being a perfect number, there's some, probably some symbolism there. And so you're going to go there for 70 years. It doesn't have to, by the way, exactly be 70 years. In an ancient prophecy like this, it has to be in the ballpark. In other words, we can round numbers off a little bit. It could be 67 or 72, but it has to be around 70 years. So you're going to be there for around 70 years. And then he says, if you repent, and basically when you repent, because he knows that they will, then I will return you. So Daniel's reading this, all right. In 605 BC, when he was a teenager, he was among the first to be deported or exiled in Babylon. And he's counting it. Remember, we said it's 539. And he's saying, we're right around 70 years. And I don't know of anybody repenting like they should have. And so I think it's time that maybe I do that. I have a feeling that chills ran up and down his spine. I have a feeling that tears leaped to his eyes. You ever have that happen when you're reading your Bible? And all of a sudden you uncover something like you, it's like, I never saw that before. Oh my goodness, that relates to me right here and now. I need to do something about that. If you haven't had that happen, you probably haven't been reading your Bible that much. Because it, it happens when we read our Bible. And by the way, a big takeaway here is notice how he prays with his Bible open. It's like a conversation. He reads the Bible and it causes him to pray. Read some more of his Bible and it causes him to pray more. Do you ever pray with your Bible open? It's especially powerful when you read something like the Psalms. It's hard for me not to read the Psalms and not pray. That's a really good application here that just is very basic to what he's saying. So that's where he gets started, and now he's going to pray, and he's going to pray to Yahweh. Now, notice that he uses the words, capital letters, L-O-R-D, and that's translated as Yahweh for us. That's God's personal name. It's his intimate name, and it's called his covenant name. It means that he's the self-existent one, but this is important because when God makes a covenant, he always makes a covenant on this name. Daniel has not used this name in all of Daniel. The first time he uses this name is when he's talking about, make, about the covenant God had made with them and the covenant they had broken. And so then what he does is to orient himself and get himself ready is he prays but he, and he pleads for mercy, but he also goes without food. He fasts for a period of time. We're not told how long. And he wears this coarse, uncomfortable material called sackcloth, and he put ashes on his head. As you leave today, we have some sackcloth and ashes, and, and it's only about $25 a pop. And you, No, we don't, we don't have anything like that for you, but um, we actually do this more than we think we do. When we go through a crisis or somebody near to us dies, we probably don't eat as much as we normally do. And we probably don't care as much about our appearance. And we probably don't sleep like we normally do. And that's a good time to pray. And so Daniel's at one of those times when he's so disturbed by what he reads that he decides, I, I don't feel like I can eat or sleep anyway, and I don't really care about anything right now, so I'm just going to get myself ready 
and I'm going to pray. And so he jumps into the prayer, and the prayer is fairly straightforward. He starts off by praising God. Notice that the main thing that they always do in prayer usually is to praise God, and then he compares God with Israel. And he says, God, you are great and awesome. You made a covenant with us, and you kept your end of the deal. You did everything. We broke it every way we could. You sent prophets to try to remind us. We rejected the prophets. You took our nation and you splintered it. And most of the people, we don't even know where they are anymore. They've gone all over the world. All that's left is Judah. Those of us that call ourselves the Jews, we're the only ones that are left. And you know what? You were righteous in even doing that. In fact, you allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and, and destroy. You, you directed him to destroy what was left of our beautiful Jerusalem and the temple. Never before in history up to this point has a city been so devastated. And you know what? We deserved it. Everything we got, we deserved because we broke everything that we said we'd do. You, you took us out of Egypt. You made us a nation, and we spit in your face. We deserve what we get. Now, notice that as Daniel does this, he says, we. Daniel was a 15-year-old probably when this started. How much did a 15-year-old boy contribute to all the troubles that they'd had all those years? Having come to Babylon, we've read time and again how Daniel took a stand for God courageously. In fact, probably recently he had just been delivered from the lion's den. This is a man of courage. This is a man who shared who he was. He, he may have even led Nebuchadnezzar, the man who destroyed Jerusalem, into a relationship with God. It's not his fault, but in his mind, it is. He sees himself as a representative of the nation, and he identifies with them. A part of that is just the whole communal thinking that is probably more true throughout the world than the, the views that we have. You know, most countries see themselves as a united country. Regardless of who the leader is, we are a country. We are all one. We may not always like each other, but you know, there's more of a, a sense of unity. Um, it's just communal. Everything's family. Everything, you know, we're very, very, very communal people for good and for bad. Um, but I think there's another aspect here, and I think it is, that he simply understood that he himself was a sinner. And that he contributed, even if it was minutely, to the overall problem. And so he identifies with it. It, it troubles me that in America, we don't see that kind of prayer going on very often, do we? I, I've been in prayer meetings. I'm not kidding. You know, I've been in prayer meetings before where I've actually heard people say, Things like, oh, God, I thank you that we have the best nation on earth and that we're so much better than everybody else and pray that these inferior nations basically won't hurt us. Um, and, you know, that's kind of almost like the prayer. And then it's like, then the next thing that comes is, oh, God, I pray for the, the younger generation that they would become more traditional in their values like we are. And, or, or they pray, oh, God, please forgive our fathers and mothers for the horrible things they've done to get us to the position that we're in today. You see what's happening? It, it all becomes about us instead of us saying, you know, maybe we're part of the problem here. You know, and Daniel would say, yeah, maybe you're part of the problem. Now, we're there, and then, then he goes next, and, and I, he starts talking about the nation of Judah, and it makes me think, what if, what if we were to substitute the United States for Judah in this prayer? 
See what I'm saying? What if we were to change the names? What if we were to go into the Bible and just take out the name Judah, and every time it said Judah or Israel, we said the United States? And what if we were looking at ourselves, praying for our country? How well have we done? I would say we have basically done far worse, for the most part, than the Jewish people. I mean, we've made idols out of celebrities. We've had killing sprees in the streets. And we accept sexual promiscuity as if it's just, that's the way people do things. That's the norm. But here's the problem. Contextually, it doesn't quite work. Because America is a secular nation with many religions. Within context, what he's talking about are those who are followers of Christ who live in America. How are we doing? Our tendency is to say the problem is the unbelievers, Lord. How are we doing? How many believers regularly pray to God like this? How many believers on a regular basis confess their sins? and the things they've done wrong and search their hearts to make sure they're right with God. Today, we don't have just these scrolls that come to us periodically that are being copied. We have both Old and New Testament authenticated, ready at the push of a button on our phones. And how many of us even read the Bible once a day? We, we stand by for things like you know, people, to, we don't take care of orphans and, we, and wi- orphans and widows like we should. And we even stand by while people kill babies through abortion. We don't say much or even maybe support it in some cases. I've heard Christians say that they do. I, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but it's what we do. Our lifestyle, is it any different than those of unbelievers? Our language, our humor... Uh, sleeping around out of wedlock, arguing over partisan politics until we're blue in the face, getting upset about our, you know, theological issues that are often insignificant. We can be rude, crude, and obnoxious, arrogant. And then we turn around and say, but you know, Lord, the problem are the non-believers. See, see what I'm saying? We're missing something here. Daniel would say, maybe pull out the old mirror, dust it off, and take a look. Because bottom line is we have to answer for these things. Pretty heavy stuff that Daniel's going through as he's repenting for his people. And I think it relates to us today, too. And I I think you you think so, too. Some of you are shaking your heads, and and Joe is making comments. So thank you, Joe. Um, (laughs) It's troubling. But I want to call you to pray a prayer of repentance. I encourage you sometime this week, even this afternoon, to do what I've just said, to sit down with your Bible and substitute the word Judah for the United States. Put the word United States in instead. And pray for your country. But pray specifically for American Christians. So pray for American Christianity in this country. And include yourself as part of the problem. Use the word we. And think of the things that we've done wrong, 
and think of the things that you can repent of on behalf of our country, on behalf of those that are followers of Christ in this country, and pray for, for the American Christianity. And as you do that, uh, you might want to fast and pray. I don't know if you've ever done that before, even if it's just for an afternoon. But it would be a good practice. So I encourage you to think about that and uh, consider doing fasting and praying. But I, I really, very seriously, read through this thing on your own and pray through it and pray for American Christianity. Now, Daniel pleads for God's mercy at the latter part of this. And he says, um, again, that God, you've been righteous. And he says, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. What he means by that is that when you're in Israel, as we were a couple weeks ago, a lot of times you think that there's just one mountain, but they're often mountain ranges. So there isn't really a Mount Zion, a real clear Mount Zion. There's, there's a mountain range essentially called Mount Zion. And in the middle of that, there's what we, is really a smaller mountain, which is sometimes called the Holy Hill, which is um, Mount Moriah, which is where they built the temple over that. So he says, right now, there's no temple over your Holy Hill. It's been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He says, don't be angry, bring it back. Help us to have our temple back is what he's basically praying for there. And, and then he basically says, why? Because he says, the people of the world identify those of us that are Judahites or, or Judeans or, or Jews, they identify us with you. And we've become a byword, so what does that make people think of you? I'm concerned for you, God, not for me. Um, and he, and he, he pleads for them to have mercy. Um, and, he, and he says, would you open your eyes and see what's going on? He gets kind of eloquent at the very end here. And he says, hear us, forgive us, pay attention, don't delay, and save your city for your namesake. You see, Daniel is not saying, do this for me, Lord. Do this for us. He's saying, we don't deserve this. Do this for you. Do what's going to be the best thing for the world to know. My purpose is that the world may know that Yahweh is the one true God. Will you please do that for that sake? That's pretty powerful stuff. Not the way we always pray, but will you do it for your sake? And so that's really what he's, he's getting to here. And as he gets there, it's very interesting that in the year 593 BC, after this, we believe, King Cyrus the Great sent out a decree allowing the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem. I guess you could say Daniel's prayer was answered. Some believe that it happened a little sooner than expected because of his prayer. Now, we don't know that for sure, but certainly God does that sometimes. Uh, and it just shows us why we need to pray believing because we never know what God's going to do. The other thing is he gets a second answer to this prayer. The fervency of his prayer and his prayer for kind of eternal the eternal salvation of his people leads God to send an angel, the angel Gabriel, back to him to give him a prophecy, one of the most famous prophecies that have ever been written in the Bible. And we're going to read about that next week, chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. So hold your horses and in the meantime, read that as well so you're prepared. Chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. When, um, when I was a boy... I made a covenant with God. I didn't call it a covenant. It just was. It was Ron's covenant. It was Ron's laws. And this is sort of how it worked. I said, God, I know you. 
I'm basically a good boy, and I work hard, and I really want to be successful, especially in sports. And if I continue to be good and do what I should do, then you need to help me be successful. You need to make me successful. That's the bargain here. I'm holding up my end of the deal, so now you need to hold up your end of the deal. And if you don't, then I'm not going to follow you anymore. You ever make a deal like that with God? That was Ron's covenant. It didn't work real well. <laughs> May have just been a lack of talent to start with. Um, but I didn't make the big times. And when high school was done and things kind of ended on a sour note, I leveled my blame at God. And I turned away from God. And for a season of my life, I went in the wrong direction. And I began to identify with the ways of the world. And then God brought some people strategically into my life midway through my first semester in college, brought some books into my life, and brought a book called The Bible in particular in my life. And I came to realize at some point that I had inverted the equation. You see, God had already made a covenant long before I was born. And God had expanded that covenant because the people of Israel could not fulfill it. I wouldn't be able to fulfill it. And so you know what God did? He came to earth as the God-man Jesus. And he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the grave to give us a new covenant so that all of us could come in through his substitutionary death. If you have not yet admitted that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, um, I pray that you do that, that you'd believe that Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is God and he died in our place, and you choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone, then come and talk to us about that so we can walk you through that process. You need to think seriously about who Jesus is and come into a relationship with him. But the point that I really want us to see here is that the covenant cannot be based on the inferior person. The servant doesn't make the covenant. The king does. It's all about him. It's not about me. My prayers are not what is best for me. My prayers are what is best for you. What, are you, what is your will and desire? Because you know what's best. We align ourselves with God. We delight in God, and he'll give us the desires of our hearts as we build relationship with him. And so we recognize that we have to call out on his mercy. We don't tell him what to do. Instead, we allow him to tell us what to do. And that's what we're always thinking in our minds is, what do you want us to do? How can we align with you? How can we bring honor and glory to you? And then we, we pray boldly in this manner. So do we pray for God's mercy? After confessing our sin and the sin of fellow believers, we should pray for God's mercy. And there's a couple ways we do this. One is um, it's not for us to tell him what to do, but to seek what he wants to do. What does he want for us? And so it's full surrender. So when you pray, pray to God, whatever you want, God. This isn't for me. What's going to be best for you and for your kingdom? The second thing is understand that, that the purpose behind all these prayers that we ask for God is for others to come to know him for others to come into a relationship with him. He's praying that the temple might be restored 
primarily, not that they can go back and, and have the rituals that they had before, but the primary reason why is that people will see that Yahweh is the one true God. We have a building that we want to build one day. We have property over on Crane Road in West Oakdale. Why would we want God to build that building? So that people will know who we are, so that we'll get it, people will get excited. We'll get to be a big church. We may even have a radio show one day or a television ministry or, you know, who knows, the money we could make. Maybe I could even get a jet or something. Um, you know. <laughs> so you can see a lot of the things we get excited about. Um, but, of course, we've gone a little bit far on that one. But the bottom line is we pray because we want people to come to know Jesus. If that building can identify us so people know where to come and we can be there to minister to them, then that's a cool thing. That's why we're praying for it. So when you think about things, one of the main things to think about is say, how can I pray for this in relationship to people coming to know you? Will this promotion enable me to reach more people for Christ? Do you ever pray that way? Will going to this particular college in order to enable me to reach more people for Christ? Will it help me to grow as a person and help me to be a witness for Christ? You, you can relate this to almost anything. What, what is it that God wants me to do to reach other people for him? And then pray boldly. As God puts things on your heart, pray boldly. Because you never know what God's going to do. Pray what you, comes to your mind. If that's what you desire, pray it. Because you don't know what God may be doing. He may be actually prompting you to pray that way and see what happens. I had a conversation with a friend that was kind of interesting this past week or two weeks ago, and we were talking just about a bunch of things. Uh, he's in ministry too, and he brought up something that I thought was really, really good, really insightful. He said, um, when Paul had his physical infirmity, we're not for sure what it was, in first. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said he prayed to God. Do you remember how many times he prayed for God to take away the infirmity? How many times? Three. three. I put up the fingers. I gave it to you. There's three. He said three times he prayed for that. To him, that probably seemed like a pretty intense thing. He prayed for it three times. For me, I tend to pray for chronic problems every day. It's almost like if I keep praying for this, maybe eventually I'll get through. How many times did Daniel pray intensely for his country? He brought this up too. How many times? One time is all we know of. You see, we tend to think if we just, if we do it once and it goes, then we'll do it two times. If we do it three times, you know, no matter how many, the most, more times we do it, the more, well, well now I've got him. Now I've got his arm behind his back. He's got to do it for me, right? And, and that's what the pagans did. You know, that's not how prayer is. That prayer doesn't work that way. It's a relationship. If I, kept, if I asked you to do something and I asked you three times, that'd be intense. If I keep asking you, that's going to put a strain on our relationship. Part of the process of prayer is entrusting it to God. At some point, you say, God, I've prayed about this. I give it to you. I've prayed it out. It's yours now. Now I'll wait and see what you do, and I'll trust you with it. If, I have, if it weighs on my heart heavily, I'll pray it again. I know that if it's on my mind, I can pray it to you and just give it to you. But in terms of praying intensely for these things, at some point, prayer requires saying, God, I entrust it to you. Amen. Now I wait and let you do what you want to do. It's up to you. I know you'll do what's right. So 
we look at those things, um, I want to tie this into the Old New Testament because we say, how in the world does this relate to the New Testament? Um, and and, they, and Jesus says it does. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Paul writes in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 about praying. And he says that we should pray for all people, including authority. So we should be people that pray. And it's interesting because it's similar in the sense that Daniel's purpose is that Everything will be reestablished so that people will know that Yahweh is the one true God. But listen to what Paul says. He says that his prayers will bring, he's praying that we will pray for people so that it will bring about a peaceful and quiet life. This is pleasing to God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't he saying pretty much the same thing? The bottom line is we pray for the authorities of our country and the world for the purpose of peace and for the purpose that people will interact with each other, people will hear the gospel, and they will come to know Yahweh is the one true God, and they'll be saved. And so it's very much the same message that we find in the New Testament. So having said that, uh, we're ultimately praying not for ourselves, but for God to make himself known that other people might come into a relationship with him, experience his transformation in their life, just as we've experienced his transformation in our life. Bottom line, you know what we're really saying? Our love for God should lead us to love our world, and that includes praying for them. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, help us to be more prayerful and help us to pray for those that don't know you um, and to pray for our nation and especially for those that are fellow followers of Christ that we would live uh, according to what the Bible says that we should, that we would, we would be good representatives of you and help us to identify more with sin in our lives and to repent of it knowing that you've already forgiven us but just to cleanse our hearts and, and open our relationship and our communication with you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.